the reason that some of this comes out in the Indian philosophy is that if you understand this context that they're working in, the fact that there are other things at play beyond the pure search for truth. So this thing, like, you know, if you win this debate, you will win followers and you'll gain income from that. That gives you an incentive to argue for your position even if it's not true, right? And so this idea of tricky debate and destructive debate, you can see how that would be employed in a way that's detrimental to people arriving at the truth, but that's helpful for their own self-interest. I'm Malcolm Keating, and you're listening to Sutras and Stuff. Today on the podcast, how does encountering Indian philosophy make a difference in our thinking about the relationship between social practices and knowing? This episode is number nine in a series of conversations with philosophers who have taught Indian philosophy at Yale and U.S. College in Singapore, an unusual liberal arts college where students first encounter philosophy through a global two-semester sequence, which includes not just Indian philosophy, but Chinese philosophy, Islamic philosophy, ancient Greek and Roman philosophy, and works from European traditions. Because this academic experiment is ending in 2025, I wanted to hear from professors who came to learn about Indian philosophy by teaching it in this global context. Most of them were experts in other areas of philosophy first. So what did they learn from this experiment? Did it change their understandings of themselves, of philosophy, of the world? My name is Robin Jung. I was a, an assistant professor at Yale and U.S. College up until 2021. I am now lecturer in political philosophy at the University of Glasgow, and I specialize in moral, social, and political philosophy. Robin writes about issues in race and gender, like whether and how people have implicit biases against certain groups, how people are responsible for changing injustice in society, and why academics focus so much on these social problems while ignoring one staring them right in the face. The fact that many faculty have little job stability and are going from one temporary job to another. If you're interested in learning about Robin's work, she's been a guest on quite a few podcasts. They're listed on her website, and I'll link to it in the show notes. Taking a look at the research she lists on that site, you might notice that it's very contemporary, focusing on 21st century issues, and it's not historically oriented. So you might wonder how someone like this found teaching a course like PPT, which barely gets to the 20th century by the end of two semesters. I had an extremely analytic training and very, very little history. I sort of sneakily got out of my history requirement when I was an undergraduate by taking a Rawls course. And so that that shows you how how little um, I cared about history of philosophy at the time, even, even in the Western tradition. The late John Rawls, who Robin is talking about, is an important political philosopher. However, he was born in 1921 and died in 2002, so as historical figures go, he's pretty recent. 
Usually, philosophy majors in the United States complete their history requirements with courses that go back to ancient Greece or maybe up to the 17th century in Europe. And so, going to Yale NUS and having to teach the PPT curriculum, which starts with ancient and goes all the way up through、uh, early modern in three traditions, that was way, way out of my comfort zone. And the Indian philosophy was the hardest part by far when I was reading the text and we got there. At first, they just were utterly unintelligible, and then when we started doing those team meetings, that's when I started to see what was going on, and and I came to really, really enjoy them as texts and also teaching them. Like a lot of my past guests, Robin found herself drawn into Indian philosophy through its metaphysical topics. So I loved the. Um, metaphysical questions about the self, and also the the Buddhist and Vedic metaphysics of what reality is like, because it's it's a very standard kind of philosophical question: is reality different from its appearance? So, Matrix and Inception, Brain and Avat, all of that you can kind of run that. And what I liked about the the Buddhist metaphysics in particular is that. It seems totally plausible to me. But in addition to enjoying the explicit treatment of metaphysics, as a political and social philosopher, Robin noticed some other themes. We 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 get this in all the traditions, but I think it came out especially clearly in Indian philosophy how much it is a social practice. So philosophy is not just a thing that you do as an individual thinker, isolated the way that Descartes does, right? That's what we think of philosophy as being. But in the Indian tradition, like right from the get-go, the historical context where you know you did a really good job in your lectures of explaining how these were these public events and there were real stakes involved because if you won the debate, you would get more followers, and that was how you actually made a living. And then there were these. Rules、um, came out of that. So the different types of debate, like honest debate, tricky debate, that has just been really useful, even for setting up a, the classroom climate. Robin's referring to the practice of holding debates in public places, like royal courts. These debates occurred among learned people of different philosophical traditions, and yes, there's evidence that winners gained fame and followers, as well as financial benefits. I have an episode in season two which talks about this.、So、I'll put a link in the show notes. Since who wins and who loses a debate has material implications, there's an incentive to try to win, even if you're not giving very good reasons in favor of your view. Debates in which two parties aren't concerned about figuring out the truth, but just want to convince a judge and an audience, are what Robin calls tricky debate. Most Indian philosophers, Buddhist and Nyaya thinkers alike, thought this was not a very good way to debate. Either morally or in terms of finding out what's true, another approach called honest debate is better. In that way of debating, you don't just try to convince people, but you try to put forward true reasons and genuinely respond to your debate partner's arguments. We'll come back to how Robin used these different kinds of debate in her classroom in a minute. But first, let's hear how she connected these ancient debate practices with modern philosophy. But it's nice because you see this intersection of political and epistemological concerns, and that's what a lot of more recent stuff that I'm interested in. So, in the feminist literature, feminist epistemology or social epistemology, all of these areas have been really growing for quite some time in the 
feminist epistemologists were talking about this sort of thing decades ago in the the Western tradition. But so it's now become very contemporary, more mainstream now, but in mainstream analytic departments, even people talk about these things. And so I loved just like seeing all of that already present in the Indian philosophy. Let's back up and appreciate how political concerns and epistemological concerns intersect in Robin's research. There's a lot of exploration of the role of power, the way that different inquirers are socially situated affects how much power they have, and that, it turns out, influences the process of trying to learn about things and and to know things. In the standard cases that a lot of people are familiar with in contemporary feminist epistemology, it's the idea, for instance, that a certain knower will be will suffer prejudices, so she will be viewed as less credible as someone else in a different social position, and so the knowledge that she has to offer will not be taken up as a valuable contribution or not be viewed as uh, knowledge at all. So this is something that Christy Dotson calls epistemic oppression. Miranda Fricker talks about epistemic injustice. And then I think the reason that some of this comes out in the Indian philosophy is that if you understand this context that they're working in, the fact that there are other things at play beyond the pure search for truth. So this thing, like, you know, if you win this debate, you will win followers and you'll gain income from that. That gives you an incentive to argue for your position, even if it's not true, right? And so this idea of tricky debate and destructive debate, you can see how that would be employed in a way that's detrimental to people arriving at the truth, but that's helpful for their own self-interest. So that's where I think that awareness that the process of knowledge you know, this is a bit uh, contested, you could say it's knowledge discovery, or you could say it's knowledge creation, uh, knowledge production, that that is actually a social process. And it involves people who have various social interests at play. And the social dynamics of, you know, power inequalities gets into that whole process. The idea of power and knowledge discovery being intertwined comes up explicitly in one of the texts in PPT, which includes a discussion. In the questions of King Melinda, a Buddhist monk is engaging in conversation with a king. And the monk, Nagasena, explicitly asks King Melinda to discuss with him as scholars do, not as kings do with their subjects. And in fact, Nagasena refuses to engage with the king if he doesn't agree to these conditions. The king is curious about this requirement. Nagasena explains that scholars do things like make distinctions, but they also acknowledge their mistakes and don't get angry. But a king will say things like, inflict such and such a punishment upon that fellow, or as the Red Queen in Alice in Wonderland might put it, off with their heads. This kind of threat is definitely a power inequality which would obstruct knowledge discovery. Now, in the questions of King Melinda, the Buddhist monk is essentially teaching the king. They aren't collaborating together to find the truth. 
But in debate more broadly, it isn't always one person who has complete knowledge who is explaining to the other person. Instead, progress in knowing happens by debate in which each side reflects and revises throughout the discussion. Robin connects this insight to the work of Helen Longino, a feminist philosopher of science who wrote a book called Science as Social Knowledge. What Longino suggests this tells us about science is that, again, you you can't depend on a single individual knower working on some inquiry you have to actually have a community of inquirers. And so when you move science up to that collective level, that's when you can have the certification process at the collective level because you're going to have different views and different people who have different kinds of biases are going to, you know, kind of go up against one another. Certification is an idea especially important in Nyaya philosophy when we check whether we know something. Ordinarily, you and I can just know things and not stop to reflect on that knowing. We simply hear true things said and believe them, or we draw very quick inferences and understand the conclusion. But sometimes we need to check whether what we've heard is true, or whether our inference is a good one. The suggestion is that this process doesn't just happen individually, but we can understand it as a social practice. And if you have the right social conditions in place, so you have to have you know, a diversity of inquirers, they have to be on equal footing, there are certain conditions that if they hold, then, because obviously it's not going to work if those things don't hold. And in the real world, that's all too often the case that it seems like it's a free marketplace of ideas, but it's actually not equal footing. And so certain ideas went out even when they shouldn't. But if things are set up at the social level in a more egalitarian way with a diversity of perspectives, then the certification can happen at that level. And then you would be able to sort of evaluate whether you know, testimony or data is reliable or not through through that kind of process. We've been talking about inequalities impacting knowledge in the broader world, but these also exist in the classroom. Robin used the categories of honest and tricky debate to get her students to think about how they wanted their classroom to be set up socially. We talked about like, what does this look like? What What kinds of experiences have you had where you've been through this? And lots of people have gone through, you know, so um, debate at the competitive level where people are given a side to defend um, and they have to do it, you know, whether or not they believe it. They've just also been in all sorts of social situations where a debate is becoming unproductive in terms of getting you towards knowledge. So people have plenty of experience of this. Each classroom would have sort of different rules, these ground rules for how we wanted to conduct ourselves so that we could make sure that we were having honest debate. That's something you can do in your classroom anyway, but I liked having that be just built into the content that we were studying. And the fact that people had been aware of these different barriers to gaining truth for ages and ages, that that was always pretty cool. Great. Well, I appreciate your time, Robin. Thanks for spending a little time reflecting with me on PPT and, and Indian philosophy. Thank you, Malcolm. And please come to Glasgow. I love it here. Everyone who's listening, come here to Glasgow and visit. I have a spare room. I can't fit everybody, but I, I loved everything that I learned from Yale and US. And I am very happy to have the opportunity to take that somewhere else and 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 share what I've what I've learned. I love this podcast too. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.